So we're embarking on a study of the book of Exodus. Over the last year and a, and a bit, our studies mainly together have focused on New Testament writings, but there was an appeal to go back into the Old Testament because of foundational principles that are there. And we'll see that particularly in the book of Exodus. And there are hard copies here of uh, the syllabus that takes us through uh, to the end of April. And that will take us through the first 14 chapters of Exodus. You're thinking, boy, that's slow progress. But as you've probably noticed, whenever we take uh, the writings of Scripture and take them systematically, we're moving into passages of Scripture that sometimes we just don't touch at all if it's left to, to men to speak the word. We're forced to look at passages that maybe we would skim over and just make some summary statements about and actually miss the richness of the reason why God has included it in his word in the first instance. So that's our reason for a methodical or systematic uh, approach and look at Exodus, certainly to the end of April, and it will coincide, Passover should coincide with Easter. And those in the know will know that that's um, an important thing because as we consider the Passover in Exodus times, it reminds us of the one who was given at Passover, Easter time, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was given for us. Now, the Bible book of Exodus was written most likely about 3,400 years ago. That's a long time ago. And it relates and recounts the events that happened then, most likely was written by Moses, and that's where most biblical scholars would be. It recounts how God intervened powerfully uh, to rescue and deliver a group of probably in the region of one million people, the descendants of Israel, to bring them out of their slavery in Egypt, the world's major superpower at the time, so they might occupy Canaan, which was a land area in the Middle East, a region that God had promised to their ancestors half a millennium before. That's a very quick summary of what Exodus is about. The very name itself, Exodus, means to come out. So that's the overarching theme of the book of Exodus. Now, here's two questions. How is something so old, relating to history so far in the past, relevant to us today? And the associated question, why is it worthy of our time and attention? As I get older, and this last week has seen another marking of another year of the aging process, it seems as though, and my kids remind me of this, that I'm becoming increasingly irrelevant. Now, um, people today say that we're the most advanced generation of humanity that we know more than the generations that have gone before. We are the enlightened ones through uh, the progress of science and technology and philosophical thinking. We know more than anything that's gone before. Why bother with something that is ancient? Surely they didn't know as much as us. That's a prevailing thinking. That's why so many people today are consumed and so easily influenced by that which is new and fresh. And these days it seems that there's something new and fresh every day. And that's to feed this appetite for something that's shiny and new. Winston Churchill is famously um, attributed with this statement, which he'd actually borrowed from a philosopher before him. Those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. 
said that in 1948. There was a man who knew that you look down the ages of history and we see humanity much the same way back into ancient times, even to prehistory, that which we know of that period. We can see humanity acting in essentially the same ways. And he said, if we don't look back, we're doomed to repeat the mistakes that have been made in the past. So there's, from a, a human standpoint, somebody who had the wisdom to say, the past is important. Let's not forget that. Maybe even some of us here can be guilty of looking for something new and fresh every day. And that can actually affect our reliance and our enjoyment of God's word because it is an ancient book. I'm hoping that as we do our study, we'll see and be reminded that Exodus is one facet of the precious jewel that is God's word, the Bible, and that it is entirely relevant today. And Exodus is entirely relevant because of its place and its purpose within the Bible. Now, as I've said, people will reject the Bible entirely as outdated and irrelevant myth that supports the fanciful thinking of people who call themselves Christians. Now, a lot of those people, maybe you've encountered them yourselves and maybe somebody is going to be listening to this, has never even taken the time to crack open a Bible to see what is written there. Because society and culture will promulgate this message that it's outdated, it's old. The Bible was um, completed at the end of the first century AD. So it's 2,000 years old, that's irrelevant. And people will dismiss it without even taking the time to look into it. Let's not be people like that. Let's be people who are not fascinated by something that's shiny and new, but will see the freshness of something that is so ancient, that is very, very precious because it's been given to us, we believe, as Christians, by God. We, in this church, certainly are convinced, I hope, that the Bible is God's word conveyed through the words of men. That 50 authors over a period of 1,500 years were writing down using different literary genres, probably to keep us engaged, but also to express things in different ways. In their specific time and setting, under the inspiration influence of the God who is there, we're gathering together, under God's guidance, a complete story that is recorded in the Bible that begins in eternity past and finishes in eternity in the future. Everything in between is there. There's no other literary writings um, or collection like it. It's unique. We believe it is God-inspired with that variety within it, in order that we might understand God, but also see our place within history. Because it goes from eternity past to eternity future. Therefore, where we are right now means that the Bible, though it was completed at the end of the first century, it speaks today to us, because we're there in the story that is yet to be fulfilled and outworked and completed because God has said that there are things still to happen. So on that basis, the Bible 
an exodus within the Bible is entirely relevant to us. As we work through the first 14 chapters of Exodus, at least together, um, we'll see that, one, God reveals himself to us through his word. That's the main purpose that God has given us, his word, that he might reveal himself to us. Secondly, we'll see that God, in his word, tells us how we should respond to him as he reveals himself to us through his word. Did you get that? God tells us, this is how you should respond whenever I show you myself in my word. And thirdly, that God is glorified. When the lives of sinners, all of us, and we'll come to that in a moment, God is glorified when the lives of sinners are transformed by God's grace as they personally encounter God through his word and respond in the way he said they should do to him. So those are three aspects that I just want us to be reminded of as we start out on this um, subject study, this book study of Exodus. That God reveals himself to us through and in his word. That he tells us in his word how we should respond to him when he reveals himself to us. And that he is glorified and sinners are transformed by his grace whenever we personally encounter him and respond to him as we should as he reveals himself to us in his word. So how does God tell us we should respond to him as he reveals himself to us through his word? I want to take the second of those points first, and there's a reason for this. Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And you're thinking, I thought this was a study in Exodus. It is. This is the introduction. 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to look at three passages of scripture in this short talk. One of them will be in Exodus. But two are going to be in the New Testament to drive home this point of the relevance of a study of an ancient writing like Exodus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is the early preacher of Christianity, Paul, writing to the church of God in Corinth that he was involved in uh, preaching to the people there and them coming to faith and people being established as a church of God. This is what he writes to them and they're a troubled church. For I do not want you, verse 1, to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Here in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, with the great message of Christianity, that faith in Christ transforms sinners' lives, is writing to those who have started this new life and are gathered together in a church of God in Corinth and are serving God, but there are problems that need to be weeded out. He's writing to them and he uses aspects of the Exodus story to make a point to this troubled New Testament church of God. Effectively he's saying, don't repeat the tragic mistakes Israel did 1400 years before. So maybe Winston Churchill borrowed it from Paul. Paul summarises very quickly how God 
protect of Israel and provided everything that was necessary for them both physically and spiritually on their journey to Canaan, the land of promise. Yet, and this is important, verse 5, he says, yet with most of them, God was not pleased. This is about a people that God had rescued for his purposes and for his glory, and yet with most of them, God was not pleased. At the beginning of this year, let's stop at that and ask ourselves, all of us, the question, does my life please God? You know, because naturally, none of us pleases God. Unless God intervenes in the life of a sinner, anything that we might do that we think pleases God actually is not pleasing God. You go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and it says there, without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek for him. There's a statement that sits over all of humanity, that it is impossible to please God without faith. But there's wonderful, wonderful grace in it. It says that it is possible to draw near to God. And it's possible to do that by faith. Believing that he exists. First of all, acknowledging that God is there. And that he rewards those who seek for him. So we can set our lives to seeking after God. And where would we find God? God reveals himself in creation. The glory of that which he has created speaks of God. He has revealed himself in the conscience that is within us. And yet, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. Though the invisible qualities of God are there and unmistakably there. So everybody is without excuse. So God goes the extra step and he communicates to us in his word. What grace of God. That those who are seeking realize that they're seeking after God. Who can lift them out of this predicament of not being pleasing to God. Now that's the predicament of every sinner. Now if you don't please God, you have no place with God. And sinners are there. Do you believe God exists? Do you know the joy of the reality of being able to draw near to a holy God who cannot stand sin and rejection of him? In Romans chapter 1, Paul's description of what sin is, is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and failing to acknowledge God for who he is or to give thanks to him. That's the essence of what sin is. Saying and overcoming your conscience, which says God is there and you say no rather not that's sin we can come draw near to a holy God because he has provided the means of approach in his son we'll come to that in a moment my question again is do you know God's satisfying reward when you seek for him and he's given us his word that we might know about him God had done something wonderful with Israel. And Paul says it's there as an example for us. He says, don't be like those people for whom God had done something. So this moves us from thinking about the generality of humanity and its sinfulness, not pleasing God, therefore under the wrath of God. 
as John chapter 3 says. But here's a people that God has intervened in their lives and by faith they acknowledge that he exists. They're seeking after him, but it's possible that that same people, like Israel, can live lives that don't please him because we're still sinners. That can apply to us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. You're thinking, now speaking to us as, as Christians, as believers. I don't desire evil. Stop and check yourself. We don't like the word evil because it seems to speak of the most hideous of things that are wicked. But the Lord said, in Matthew chapter 7, as he started his Sermon on the Mount, and he was speaking primarily to his disciples who had the faith to follow him, embryonic faith, with others listening in as well. He said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, what about your heavenly father? Will he not give good gifts to those who trust him? He said to that group of followers who had faith, he said, you're evil. What's evil? The essence of evil is that which is still there within us that would desire other things above God himself. God is working. Paul says that to the church of God in Corinth. He says, you're desiring other things. Don't fall into the trap. We've seen the example of Israel in the writings of Exodus and also in Leviticus and in Numbers as well because the story continues through there. He says, don't be like them so that you might not desire evil. Respond to God by faith. Trusting him for who he is as he reveals himself to you. That's the means of starting a life that brings pleasure to God because when we trust him we realise that God is the means of salvation that we can never be ourselves. We can't extricate ourselves from our sinfulness. So he gave himself in his son, Jesus Christ, the saviour who came. It says in the New Testament, I think it's First Peter, it says that Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. By faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But we can draw near. How? Through the way that he has said, the only way. Through Christ the Saviour, the one who said, I am the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John chapter 14 and verse 6. For those who start on that life when God intervenes and shows the glory of the Saviour to them. And by faith they say, God, I believe you exist and you've done this to save me from my sin. I'm no longer under your wrath because Jesus died on the cross for my sin. He satisfied you where I couldn't. His perfect life was given me you've raised him from the dead i see this and i accept it by faith then begins that new life new creation life that begins to bring pleasure to god but the warning here for us as christians in a church of god is that these things were written as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did you know the bible is not as many people sometimes assume it and this is christians as well as those who would never spend any time with it 
as a list of unreasonable commands issued by a cosmic killjoy. It's not that. It's not. The word of God, the wonderful combination of command and example. Those two things are important. Yes, there is command from God because God is the one who has made all things and we are his creatures. Therefore, he has the right to issue and say we do whatever he says we should do. And when he does that, it's for our good. And we reject it, we suffer the consequences. So he does issue command, but he gives us in his grace example as well. So take that, that the word of God in its entirety is a combination of command and example. People in real circumstances responding to God so that we might learn that we would not desire evil as they do, but rather desire God himself. Desiring anything else above God is desiring evil. None of us has been exempt from that today, have we? So God tells us how we should respond to him. He says, when I make myself known to you, by faith, accept what I tell you. And you can draw near to me and you'll be rewarded as you continue to seek for me. That's what God says in his word, how we should respond. Hear my command. See the example. See those who have done what I said should be done. And see those who haven't. And in seeing the example, hear what it is that I say. You know that last verse of John chapter 3 and verse 36. It says, the wrath of God abides over those who do not believe. I said this recently. No, I'm getting that verse wrong. Let me, let me quote it right. John chapter 3 verse 36 says this. Whoever, where is it? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The word obey is not an accident in that. And it doesn't mean that we achieve our salvation. It means that we respond to the revelation of God most fully in his Son who stepped into humanity. And we hear him with his appeals to come to me. I am the only way. I am the life. We hear that and we obey. We respond in obedience to God's revelation. And we're drawn near to God. And we're rewarded as we seek him and continue to do so. What exactly does God reveal? We're going back to point one of the three points. So that was point two. God tells us how to respond. Back up to the first point. What exactly does God reveal of himself to us through his word? That we should even want to trust him and have this faith placed in him. Now that requires all of scripture. But let's go back to Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to read a portion here from Exodus 6 which uh, Steve is down to. Um, expand for us but I just want us to see it because I think it's a summary of Exodus and it's a summary of God's word of the intentions of God's heart towards humanity and to us whom he has redeemed so Exodus chapter 6 and this is verse 2 God spoke to Moses and said to him I am the Lord I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, 
I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, look at verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. There's how not to respond to God. But how does God reveal himself? Here he reveals himself as, I am the Lord. Verse 2 and verse 8, I am the Lord. Bookends and everything in between is a declaration of who he is. We'll get more of it later in the book of Exodus. But here's a summary of who God is and how he is working for those that he will intervene in their lives to bring to himself. It's remarkable. So between these bookends, we see something wonderful. Yahweh. Now, just let's say this very quickly. I don't want to take from Steve on this. But when God says, I didn't reveal myself with this name uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I don't believe that they didn't know his name. I think they knew him as the Lord Yahweh. Um, but they didn't understand the fullness of what his name meant. That's what I understand with that verse. But follow down through with me on this. Here is God saying to Moses, this is who I am. Now you go and tell this people Israel for whom I am going to do something amazingly miraculous. Go and tell them who I am. Verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God says, I am the God who is there and who makes himself known. Stepping in to human history. Verse 4, I established my covenant with them to give them Canaan. He says, I graciously intervene to do for you what you've not earned. They had no rights to that land, but God intervened and said, you'll have it. Verse 5, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel. God is the God who knows the individual circumstances of everybody's life. That either brings fear or it brings comfort and peace. Verse 6, I will bring you out. He says, I will act personally to change your circumstances. Verse 6 again, I will deliver you. He says, I will act and the freedom of my will, so that you might be freed from the slavery of your situation. And as sinners were slaves to sin, Jesus said. Verse 6, I will redeem you. He says, I have authority and have the ability to pay the costly price that you might be delivered and redeemed. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people. He says, I'm going to have you and you're going to be mine. What does it mean to be God's people? Verse 7 again, I will be your God. You'll have nobody else before me. You'll see all that I have done and you'll love me for who I am. Verse 7 again, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Because God in his working before, after and into the future will mean that we come to know the wonder of who he is. He will demonstrate himself 
in his very presence. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham. God's saying, I always keep my promises. And we see that throughout scripture. And verse 8, again, I will give it to you as a possession. What? Canaan, the promised land. He says, I'll give it to you. It's amazing. This is what God will do for sinners who turn away from him. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in our evil intentions of our hearts continually. We're undeserving of any of this, yet God will work for a people of Israel who with most of them God was not pleased. And he will work. Why? Because it's who he is. And it's the revealing of himself. Now, who would not want to respond positively to a God who says, this is who I am. And we're going to work through this in these chapters of Exodus together. Let's not be like the people who when they heard from Moses, this is who God is. Did not listen because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. I don't know everybody's circumstances. Even people that may be listening to this. We have a broken spirit with circumstances in life. I think there's nothing that can come into my life that can cover this brokenness. That is there because of sin or the things that people have done for me. Don't let that brokenness close your ears and close your eyes to the glory of who God is as he reveals himself in his word. And their harsh slavery. We're sinners, all of us. Those that have been redeemed are no longer slaves to sin, but we have the freedom now to not sin. That's the wonderful freedom that God brings us into. And maybe some, even here, or listening, don't know what it means to be set free from the slavery of sin. And if they have been, and are as Christians living life, they're still enslaved to certain sins, secret, maybe even tolerable sins in life. Don't let those things stop our ears and close our eyes from seeing who God is, because God will intervene. If we come honestly and let him into the recesses of our lives, and change us for his glory. That's what he did for Israel. He said, I'm coming. I'm going to be right with you. I'm going to intervene absolutely in every one of your lives. I'm going to do it. And it will be for your good. And I'll be glorified in doing it. How is God glorified? When the lives of sinners are transformed by his grace as they personally encounter God through his word. This is the third point to finish with. Go with me to Romans 15. Exodus has foundational uh, theological trajectories, if I can say that, that, that are built upon into the New Testament and through uh, the words of the Lord Jesus himself and through the writings of the apostles and the teachings that were given to the churches. God was starting something foundational with principles there that come through. Did you notice as we went through who God is, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, and everything in between? We know it as being ultimately fulfilled in the person of Christ. I should say this, 1 Corinthians 10. Did you see how Paul used the Exodus experience to bring the people to Christ? He said the spiritual rock that followed them was Christ. He's the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of what is there foundationally in uh, Exodus. But how is God glorified when the lives of sinners are transformed? Read with me from verse 4 of Romans 15. In fact, verse 3. Verse 2. Let us 
Let each of us please his neighbour for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's Psalm 69. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Here's Paul again writing to the church of God in Rome this time. And after he's written so much about the glories of God's sovereign grace in salvation here as he's winding down his letter he says this will be seen in your lives that are transformed he says here's instruction he says instruction whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction some have said this is an instruction manual that does it a disservice but God instructs us in the matter of living through his word And it's seen in lives that are transformed. Why? Because through the encouragement of the scriptures, and Paul then was thinking of the Old Testament, including Exodus, he said we might have hope. We all want hope, don't we? I was thinking uh, of that scripture this morning in, in 1 Timothy 4, where Paul said, we have our hope set on the living God. I had to learn it that way because I kept defaulting to We have set our hope on the living God. It's not that. We have our hope set on the living God. That's important. It's there in that order. Hope in the one who is above everything, who has revealed himself as the one who is going to intervene in a glorious and mighty way in people's lives. And he has done so in history past, has done so in the person of Christ, and still does today. As he does his work through the indwelling of his spirit in the lives of believers as he transforms them. What's the transformation here that glorifies God? Did you notice that last verse says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It's about welcoming. Where were we in um, thinking that verse through in Hebrews 11 and verse 6? That we can draw near to God. We're welcome to God in Christ if we will accept him for who he is. Believe that he has died to be our saviour. We're welcome to God. We as Christians are to do the same thing. To welcome one another. In accord with Christ Jesus. It said in the middle of this little section. What are we to do? We're to be those who are people of endurance. Encouraged through the scriptures. So that we might have hope. Why would we have hope? Because in the scriptures. We see who God is. We see who God is for his people. And that gives us all the hope that we need to live every day, whatever the circumstances are. Because he has promised a glorious future. But not only that, he has has promised a present that we can endure and enjoy. Notice that. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. And this is written to a church of God. May this God who can do this grant you to live in harmony with one another. Notice that Paul does not use the word serve. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. 
What does that say? It takes us back to the foundational days of Acts chapter 2. And we see the first church of God in Jerusalem. It says they had all things in common. The people that were transformed by the grace of God and their salvation were willing to give their lives entirely, open them to others. They had all things together and in common. We're to live in harmony with one another. That's not keeping things secret. Now, there is a need for secrecy in some things and privacy, I know. But we're not to be people who have a tendency to, to keep ourselves to ourselves. Christians are people who are open and welcoming. And that's seen particularly in a church of God. Jesus said to his disciples, people will know that you're my disciples when you love one another. It's expressed here, isn't it? You live in harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, with the purpose in it, that together you may, with one voice, in unity, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've done that this morning, as we've gathered in the presence of God, as we've been here for the remembrance. Glorifying the name of the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done from all of eternity to bring us to himself and to welcome us into his presence. One voice in unity. There's not to be anything of disharmony in anything of this. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good. That's the transformation that should be seen in the life of a Christian where God has intervened most powerfully to bring them to himself. So these themes that are there throughout scripture, a lot of them have their foundational um, settings there in Exodus. So this is something really enjoyable. So this methodical systematic work through is not a drudgery at all. As we take little section after little section, we're not stretching the things of scripture. We're just seeing God as he reveals himself. And as God reveals himself, he tells us how we should respond to him. And if we respond rightly to him, then our lives are transformed by his grace for his glory. Let's enjoy this study together. Let's pray.